You are listening to Afraid Not Podcast with Jill McCormick and Robin Wall. We believe that our stories matter and make us who we are. Every other week, we invite guests to join us and share their stories. Even though our stories have not, we are not afraid. Our stories have phrase, they are not perfect. We believe the truth of our mess makes us stronger. We hope that God uses these stories to encourage and strengthen your faith as you trust in Him. Our theme verse is Colossians 1.17, which says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, even our frayed knots. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Jill McCormick. And I'm Robin Wall. And this is Afraid Not Podcast. Thanks for listening today to episode 125. We are so glad that you are here today to hear this amazing story that Misty Marley is sharing with us today. Misty is a teacher at Rejoice in Owasso, Oklahoma, and she is going to talk about her situation with her mother and her addiction that she suffered with for many, many years. And this story really is a, I think it's a lifeline. I'm so glad that Misty said yes, because there may be so many listeners today who feel alone. Maybe a loved one in your life is going through some really terrible things and you don't know what to do. And this episode is for you. And it's for anyone struggling with addiction and thinking, nobody knows and and what do I do? And this really, we're all fooling ourselves if we think we have to somehow pretend that we've got it all together because nobody has it all together. And Misty is so open and honest about how she's found hope and how she has walked through some really tough things. I just am grateful for this episode and I think that it's going to help a lot of our listeners today. You're going to hear a lot of practical things that you can do or resources that you can look into. So Again, if if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, all of the people around that person is struggling with that addiction. So listen in. Hi, Misty. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for your time and being willing to talk with us and our listeners on Afraid Not. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself today? Sure. I, um, I guess I'm fairly new to this area. My husband and I moved here about eight years ago been married for 23 years now and um, he's a head football coach in AD so living that life of a coach's wife for many years. We have three boys together. My oldest Caden is a um, sophomore at West Point and then we have a junior and um, our youngest the baby is in sixth grade. So I'm completely surrounded by boys all the time. All boy things. Um, <laughs> super involved in just going to all their athletic stuff and being supportive to my husband and um, you know, all that good stuff. Mm, that sounds fun. I bet you have been to so many football games. Yeah, countless, <laughs> for sure. Couldn't even tell you how many. <laughs> and you and your husband are at the same school? We are, yes. That's and we've funny. been really fortunate. Um, straight out of college, we both got hired at the same school and um, and then went to this one that we're at now together. And it's been a family affair our whole career, which has been really nice. I love that. Yeah. That's really cool. Do you get to go to school together each day, or do you take separate vehicles, or what do you do? Well, his schedule is a lot more um, involved than mine, so he stays longer hours. He goes earlier than I do, so no, we don't ride together, mm-hmm. but definitely get to see him from time to time throughout the day, and because of his career and how demanding it is, it is nice to be able to just 
if I need to, you know, run down the hall and say hi for a second. And yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's super cool. Does he teach anything or just coach? Uh, th- now he's the athletic director, so he doesn't currently okay. teach. Um, gotcha. Just yeah. does all the duties. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I bet he is a very in-demand person. Athletic director does so many things, so many spinning plates. Yeah, he's pretty busy. It's one of those jobs that is 24-7, you know, mm-hmm. brings mm-hmm. it home and on the weekends and all the things, but he, it's definitely his calling and his passion and he thrives in it and we're just blessed to be where we're at. So did you all meet in college? Um, We actually um, grew up in the same town, um, but it was a large school district, so we weren't really friends. Um, And then we ended up um, going to the same college together and had a mutual friend. And so that's where we really, we knew of each other, but that's where we got to know each other and made the connection. Yes. Oh, that's fun. Yep. Really cool. So tell us a little bit about your story of when you came to know Jesus. Okay, Sure. Um, I was really fortunate to grow up in a Christian home. My grandfather was um, a pastor until he retired, and now he's at home with Jesus. But um, So it was always a big part of my life. I mean, we were at church every time the doors were open. Um, however, it was a really small church, and so I had a lot of great examples, but not a lot of practical teaching as far as what it looks like to have my own personal relationship with the Lord. So I had a lot of head knowledge, but not a lot of heart knowledge. And um, it wasn't until I went to college, I went to Oklahoma State, and um, there I got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. Mm -hmm. And um, that ministry is incredible in and of itself, but they um, just really pour into people and believe in discipleship. And so I had a mentor who was a staff lady by the name of Robin, and I met with her weekly, and um, and she really just taught me all those practical things of like what it means to have a quiet time and spend time with Jesus and daily, and and um, you know pursue all um, purity and all the good you know godly things. And so I would say that's really when I started you know my own personal relationship with the Lord and and just digging into to what that means um, and walking that out in my life. It's pretty special that um, a mentor made such a difference in your life. It is an example straight out of the Bible of older women teach the younger. Mm-hmm. I mean, she made a difference for you. Mm-hmm. And still to this day, you look back to the time she invested in you, mm-hmm. where really your relationship with Christ became a lived out thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's so interesting, you know, how people come to your life for seasons and, mm-hmm. and that was actually a very short season, you know, just a couple of years that, that I got to know her so well. And I mean, we're still connected on Facebook, but don't, I haven't seen her in years, but the impact has stuck with mm-hmm. me, you know, right. for 30 plus years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. That's really good. So tell us what your story is of your afraid not. Sure. Well, um, like I said before, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, my parents um, were divorced when I was a baby, so I didn't really have a relationship with my father. He wasn't a part of my life all that much. Um, but my mom got remarried when I was fairly young, and um, I thought, you know, it was a very stable home life. Um, my mom was really great about just pouring the word into me. I remember, like, specifically, 2 Timothy 1.7 was the first scripture I ever memorized because I'd was scared at night, you know, and mm-hmm. so she would come mm-hmm. in and, and we would quote that scripture, you know, you don't have the spirit of fear, power, love, and a sound mind. Um, and so, um, 
you know, things seemed very normal all growing up. Um, what I didn't know, though, is that my mom was secretly struggling with a very significant stronghold in her life. And so it wasn't until I was about 15 or 16 that it became apparent that something was going on with her. Mm-hmm. She wasn't acting normally. And, of course, being just a teenage girl, I had no idea what that was or, or what was going on. What clues gave you awareness of any kind of something going mm-hmm. on? Sure. Well... She started, um, she, she became sick a lot, like going to the doctor a lot, like regularly, multiple doctors. Um, and then there were just a lot of medications and, um, and then she would start like, um, she would pass out like, you know, mid conversation. Oh yeah. Um, and then mm-hmm. there were a couple of specific instances, um, at that time that I witnessed things that. Now looking back, it's very obvious to me what was happening, but at the moment, it was like so unreal that I couldn't even wrap my brain around it. Like for instance, one of them was I remember walking into the kitchen one day and she was at the stove cooking bacon and she didn't know I had walked in and she took the skillet of hot grease and poured it down her leg (gasps) on purpose. Oh no. Yeah. And I remember just like thinking, why? did I really just see that? Like, Yeah. I know she did it on purpose, but surely she didn't do that on purpose. You know, did she I cry out in pain as the hot grease? It's not, and not. It was very, it was very stoic. It was an odd experience, the whole wow. thing. Um, but then, yes, you know, not too long after that, I was, of course, I was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? You know, and um, now I know all of that was because she was addicted to pain medication, oh, and at no. that point in her life, she was willing to do anything just to be able to get some pain medication. So she was, okay, I didn't know if it was like a self-harming situation mm-hmm. or she, okay, so she was just trying to find a way to go mm-hmm. to the doctor. Yes. Because in a, if a burn wound shows up, she's going to be handed Absolutely. what she's after. Yes. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. And back then, you know, now the laws have changed a lot. This was, mm-hmm. you know, 20, sure. 30, 30 plus years ago. Um, so it, it was easier to get them even then. But she still had to do things like that because she was frequently getting them so so often. Were the doctors starting to question why she was so accident prone or, or was she going to different doctors? No, I think she was very strategic, yeah, about going to different doctors and making up multiple stories. There were even times where... Um, she would like she would call my doctor and make up stories about me in order to get medication for me, but then she was using it herself. Um, this was probably all hidden from you for a long time. Yeah, in fact, I remember that specific situation with the doctor, uh, my doctor. I was in college, and she called me one day and said, hey, your doctor's going to call you. He just wants to check in and see how you're doing. And I remember thinking, that is so odd. Mm -hmm. Why would my doctor want to be – I kind of thought it was creepy, to be honest. You know, I'm a college girl. Why is he wanting to talk to me? And and he did call me, and we had a conversation, but he never asked me anything about that. So, obviously, he was – Kind of in on it. Yeah, wondering what was going on, but – um, but never came out and asked me specifically, and I didn't. I didn't know until years later that wow. that's what happened. So, but you, this addiction had been going on for years before that. Yes, she was very much. Now I know we have a very open, um, you know, line of communication about it now. Um, and she has shared with me that um, it started 
or in her early 20s when she had a surgery, and that was the first time she had gotten pain medication. And what I didn't know is she had endured a lot of trauma as a child and had never dealt with it. Mm. And so she tells me now that when she got that pain medication, it was the first time that she remembers feeling happy. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. then it became a situation where I need that in order to feel happy. And it Mm. just snowballed from there. So she was very functioning for Mm -hmm. most of my childhood. I had no idea. Um, until, like I said, when I was about 15 or 16, that's when it spiraled out of control. Yeah. What about your stepdad? Was he, did he know what was going on? I think he was, I think he was lived in the lane of denial for the most part at that point. Um, she actually, um, several, probably about five years later, um, acknowledged that she had a problem and did, um, go into, to rehab. So, um, that still was many years ago. And so that's when it became, you know, he, he knew there was an mm-hmm. issue. She admitted that there was an issue. Um, but I still don't think he really admitted to himself this, you know, the gravity of, of the situation. Um, it was just easier for him to sure. deny it or pretend like it wasn't happening. Yeah. Did you feel helpless as a, a daughter in this situation of uh, wondering how to help your mom, what to do, if to do anything. I mean, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I think because of my age and just my inexperience and lack of knowledge about addiction and, and what was going on, you know, it's so true that they say, like, what, what you grow up in is your normal. And you don't right. know it's not normal until mm-hmm. you're an adult and you know normal, you know. Right. And so for me, I just, I, I, I do remember knowing that it wasn't right. And I was very embarrassed about it. And so I did everything I could to hide it. I mean, my mom was the most incredible person, extremely outgoing. Everybody loved her. And so when she was sober, I wanted everybody to know that part of her. I didn't want anybody to know there was anything else going on. So for years, I just held it inside. I held on to it. I dealt with it myself. I didn't tell any of my friends. I didn't talk to anybody about it. Um, I didn't even know that I should talk to somebody about it at that time or that there was people I could talk to about it. Um, so for many years, yeah, I just kind of held it in and, and it was my own personal misery and struggle for a very long time. How did this all end up coming to light? Sure. So this has actually been an ongoing struggle for, um, a, 30 plus years. Um, so she, I said she went into rehab and she got help and she, and she came out. Uh, while she was in rehab, they flagged her charts so she could no longer get the, the pain medication, mm-hmm. which was a blessing. Um, she did very well for a few years. Did something um, finally push her into rehab or did she just finally realize she needed? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I can't really pinpoint what caused her to do it at that point mm-hmm. because it wasn't like there was an intervention or an ultimatum or anything like that at that time. Um, yeah, I think she just decided on her own. She was going to a counselor and, and the counselor was like, I really think you need this. And so she was willing to try it and it, and it was helpful. The problem is I don't think she really fully dealt with all the trauma that she had. And there it was still very, very deep. Yeah. And so then, um, she started drinking and drinking, like there was never alcohol in our home growing up ever at all, not at dinner, not out to eat. You know, we never had alcohol. So I remember, and I'm an adult at this point, just thinking that is really strange, you know, that she's starting to drink, but 
I realize now, you know, she has just switched from one substance to another. Mm-hmm. Again, just, you know, right. trying to medicate that, that hurt and pain. Um, and at that point, um, her marriage that was already rocky just fell apart because once she started drinking, it became very toxic and she no longer, um, could hide it from anyone. Everybody then knew that there was obviously something going on that she had a problem. And, um, and I think that was a big turning point for all of us because I couldn't hide it anymore because she could no longer hide it. Um, and it was at that point that, um, we started having those conversations about ultimatums and, you know, interventions and that kind of thing. And, um, and she did go back in, into rehab again. And, um, I mean, I, I could talk for days and days just about the ups and downs of, of walking along this road with her, because I wish I could say, you know, she went into rehab and she got fixed and, and everything's been great ever since, but that's just not how it's been. And that's really not how it works in addiction most of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I think I always held on to hope of, oh, she's going to go and she's going to get fixed and everything's going to be great. Um, And unfortunately, loved ones of addicts um, have their own form of addiction in that I became addicted to making sure she was okay. Mm -hmm. So I was very codependent. Yeah. Very much codependent Mm -hmm. on her. And, um, And so as long as she was okay, I was okay. The problem is I wasn't dealing with my stuff either. And so the second she started using again, then I started spiraling my, myself. Um, mm-hmm. So it's been a roller coaster ride for many, many years. Um, and so it wasn't until actually just probably about eight years ago now um, she relapsed again. And at that point, she had been sober for her longest period of time, going on like 16 months. And I thought she was fixed. And then when she relapsed again, um, I just went into a tailspin. I, I had a panic attack for the first time. We had people over at our house, and she came over, and I knew she wasn't right. And I had to call my husband into the garage, and I was like, honey, you're going to have to pray for me. Like, I can't even get myself together mm-hmm. to even get out there. And, um, and so that next day, I just told myself that she might not become sober this side of heaven. And if she doesn't stay sober, I have got to find a way to have peace with myself, to be able to have joy in my own life and, and move on. And so at that time, I reached out to um, the leader of an organization called um, Finding Hope. I knew about this organization because my mom had spent some time in one of their sober living houses. Um, so it's underneath the umbrella ministry of Hope is Alive Ministries. And um, Amy, um, the leader just talked to me for the longest time and um, was such a godsend of just being a voice of reason, but also a support, but also just um, being a loved one of an addict herself, she could talk to me in ways that no one else could. And um, and so at that point, I started um, going to um, the Finding Hope meetings which are, is just a support group for loved ones. Kind of like an Al-Anon type. Yes. Okay. Yes. So very similar to Al-Anon with the exception of it has a biblical focus. And so I love Al-Anon and it's so great for so many people. But instead of, you know, talking about your higher power, we talk about Jesus, you know, and, and the word and, and apply the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just transformational for me when I started going to those meetings. You know, for years, I knew that God was going to use my pain in some way. 
I knew it wasn't going to go to waste. I just didn't know what that was going to look like. But I remember sitting in one of those Finding Hope meetings for one of the first times and the Holy Spirit just impressing on me, this is it. Like, I want you to lead one of these groups. And so at the time, the only group that was closest to me was about 40 minutes away. And so I was driving 40 minutes to go. and, And I thought, you know, yeah, I mean, I need this in my community. There's got to be other people in my community that need this too. Yeah. And so, um, I reached out to the coordinator and I went through a leader's training and, um, and now I, I lead a finding hope group here in our hometown and, and have for a couple of years. And, and that's been such a blessing. That's really, really cool. Uh, I, I think the moment that you were just talking about when you had this awareness of the Holy Spirit revealing to you, this is it, Misty. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use you in this. Mm-hmm. This is it. Yeah. That's pretty special. Yeah. I mean, it's such a great example of how the scripture that talks about God making everything beautiful in its time, God turning, bringing beauty from ashes, like a hard thing that you would never want mm-hmm. to say, oh, this is part of me, yet that is the very thing that is now the way that you can be the arms and the, the hands of Jesus for people to reach out and bring them in and share his love and hope. And I mean, this is really special and a way to just open up your heart and your life in a way that is so meaningful. It's so meaningful. Well, I'm just grateful to be a part, but you know, it is so true. You know, there is such a stigma attached with addiction and um, with all mental health. And I feel like we've come so far in that, um, in the Christian community, um, but that we still have so much farther to go. Yes. And I think especially for loved ones, they, they have so much shame because, um, especially parents mm-hmm. of, of addicts, they feel like it's their fault or they did something wrong, you know, or people are going to judge them or feel differently about them um, because you know, they have this addict in their life. And, and that's just not the truth, you know, and, and as an outsider, you know, and you think I would never think differently of you because you have somebody that's struggling in your life. But when you're in the thick of it, you can't see it clearly. And, um, and so I'm just so grateful for this support group. I wish that I had known about it 30 years ago. I feel like it would have saved me a lot of suffering and heartache and my family too, um, just because, um, of just not knowing, you know, and, and, um, and another part of facet of that, I guess you could say is, um, it's, I think it's harder maybe for Christians to walk alongside, um, loved ones that struggle with addiction because we want to be Christ-like and we want to show love, but what we don't realize is you still need boundaries when you Mm. have someone that is toxic in your life. And, and that's a hard thing to, to, um, wrap your mind around as a believer, because how do you balance that love of Christ, but also have healthy boundaries when, when it's necessary. And so the support group, you know, is also, I mean, not only a support for people to be able to just share, you know, and bounce things off each other, but we have a curriculum and and we talk about those things like, um, boundaries and PTSD and, 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 so many different topics, um, that just educate us and help us to know, um, but it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. And, and that we have to be healthy, um, in our own selves in order to be able to love the ones that are struggling and in a biblical way. 
-hmm. Can you maybe give some examples of some boundaries that are like general that most people would need to set with somebody? Sure. Um, Well, unfortunately, it's not black and white. Well, I know. I was supposed to say, I know everybody's different and every situation is different, but like just kind of wish there was a book that said (laughs) yes and no, you know, to these things. Um, But I think a couple of hard ones that are pretty obvious are um, you should never bail your loved one out of jail. And that's really hard. That is really hard. Yeah. But if you don't let them experience the consequences, if you continue to rescue them, then they know they're going to be rescued. And so there's no motivation to not do it again. Right. So say they get a DUI or something and you go, yeah. 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 And um, there's other ones. Like for me specifically, it's a little bit different because it's my mom who's the addict in my life. But... I mean, my boundary with her is that if she's using, then we are not in communication. So I don't accept phone calls from her. We don't see her. Um, it's just best for me and my family. And um, and she knows that now. And um, um, so that's just, it's out there on the table. She's aware and, and, and we abide by that if necessary. Um, there's lots of different examples mm-hmm. Um those are just the first that come to mind. Did you have siblings growing up or was it just you and your mom? I had a stepsister growing up um, for the latter part of, of my years, but she was in and out. She didn't okay. live right. with us all the time. Um, so for the most part, it was just me and my mom. And I think that's a big reason why there was such a codependency, mm-hmm. you know, sure. because I don't have a relationship with my dad. She was all I had, you know, and, and, um, and but yeah, so it's always just kind of in us. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So what are some signs like, so it sounds like when she was on pain medication and then when she was on alcohol, those were different ways she was reacting. Mm-hmm. Are there different types of warning signs and things that people should look for? Yeah. I think when, when um, your loved one when it's affecting their life in that, for instance, they, they aren't going to work or you're making excuses for them or, you know, pretending they're sick, you know, when they should be at something, that's a huge sign that something's not right. It's bigger than just, you know, a, an occasional drinker or, you know, I just have this illness and I'm taking this medication. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely, I think as far as prescription medications, in my experience, the warning signs are, um, you know, if they're running out of their prescription before they should, then obviously they're not taking it correctly and there might be a problem. Um, As far as like physical signs, um, like I said with my mom, she would start to pass out. Mm -hmm. Slurred words are a a big sign. Dilated pupils. is, is a big one. Um, just kind of acting sleepy, that kind of a thing. Um, unfortunately with my mom, when she's drinking, she is angry. So she's very violent, very verbally abusive. And so it's pretty obvious, um, when she's drinking, um, because those signs, she's just very different, very like black and white different. Right. When right, she's right. Sober. I know one of the things with loving someone who's dealing with this that must be so hard is the fact that we can't cause someone else 
to choose the right choice, mm-hmm. no matter how much we want to, and no matter how much is for their good. Mm-hmm. So what advice could you give to our listeners who are, maybe they're in a situation right now with their loved one and they see warning signs mm-hmm. and it's in a sense of still that person's trying to fool everybody, but the loved one's like, uh-uh, I see this, there's something off. Mm-hmm. And I know they can't fix it. There's no way no one can fix someone else. But what would be some positive steps they could take? Maybe conversations to have or connections to Hopeless Alive Ministries? Or Mm -hmm. what steps would they take that would be a possible leading them in the right direction? Mm -hmm. Sure. I think, first of all, just educating yourself. So whether that is, you know, getting on the internet and and finding out resources. There's so many resources out there now, thanks to the internet, um, of, you know, ways that, what can you do personally? Because like you said, you can't change them. You can have conversations with them, but oftentimes those are not productive because when they're in the middle of addiction, they're just going to deny, they're going to lie, and it's going to go nowhere. And that's not to say you shouldn't be upfront and honest and have hard conversations with them. I think you definitely should. But if it becomes heated or um, non-productive, then you might not. You might have to just stop having those conversations. And so then it just becomes about you have to get yourself healthy. And it's so interesting because what I've seen since I've been involved with Finding Hope Ministries is so much of the time, when the loved ones start getting support, when they start coming to our group and finding out, you know, what is okay and what's not, um, how they should respond and how they shouldn't, they get themselves healthy. So many times that's when the loved one starts to seek out help. And oftentimes that's what starts the process of them finding sobriety. I think it's what we don't realize as loved ones, no one intentionally enables. Like right. nobody right, wants right, right. to make it continue. Right. Everything you're you're doing is in an attip, attempt to stop it, but oftentimes it's, it's just helping it keep mm. going. And so when they they get themselves healthy, then they're no longer enabling, they're no longer prolonging the addiction for the loved one. And once the loved one realizes, oh, okay, they're not going to rescue me anymore. They're not going to come to my aid. They're not going to keep giving me money. I'm, I'm here on my own. I've got to get this figured out. Oftentimes that's when it jump starts their sobriety. Mm-hmm. And that's tough to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is so tough to do. I, I mean, it's so easy for me to sit here right now and talk about these boundaries, but I can't even tell you. I mean, it took me years to be able to be consistent, to have these boundaries. And and this is with my mom. And it is so, I mean, it is very hard, even though it's my mom. I honestly cannot imagine if it were my child. Mm-hmm. I, I have to believe that parents who have children who are struggling with addiction probably have the hardest time with those boundaries because you're their mama. You just want to love, you just want to be there for them. You want to rescue them. Like it's just kind of in us to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so contrary to what nat- what you naturally want to do that it does. It, it's very, it's very hard. So do you have ideas or, or things that you've thought about 
like with our with the church in general, the big C church, what should people within the church body do for somebody who has an addiction or they are around somebody with a family member with addiction? Well, first of all, they need to love them. They need to love them through the chaos, through the hard stuff. Um, they need to be there just as a listening ear. Um, make themselves available. Check in with people if you feel like there might be something going on. Um, you know, more than the just how are you doing? Like, no, like really, like how are you doing? What What's going on? Like and, get in and, people's business. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then as far as the church body themselves, like I know for Finding Hope specifically, um, we are – housed inside churches. So being open, opening your doors to allowing a support group to meet, um, you know, in your building. Um, and then also just supporting those ministries that are loving on these family members and those struggling, um, with addiction. And how about the kind of, you mentioned earlier in our recording today about how there's some of, sort of a shame carried how can we get rid of that how can we deal with it what can we do to just take that burden and say we don't need that shame we just come open come as you are how can we help in that yeah I know for me personally you know the word says that the truth sets you free Mm -hmm. and for me I I just kept it bottled up for so long because I was so scared of what people would think and how they would judge me that when I finally decided, like, I can no longer hide this, and I just started opening up. First, I started opening up to the closest people to me, of course. You know, your safe people that, right. you know, just like, I need prayer. You know, I'm just, please pray for me. Please pray for my mom. Um, but then as I became more and more comfortable talking about it, I cannot even tell you the weight that was lifted off of me. Just being able to say, like, my mom is an addict. And it's, it really, it's hard. It's really, really hard. And, and what I found is those people in my life that are believers and that love me, they didn't judge me. They came alongside me and prayed for me and checked in with me. And even though they had no idea what it was like to, to walk that road, um, they were supportive. Um, and so I would just really encourage, um, anyone out there who, um, has a loved one in their life who's struggling with addiction to just talk about it. It's mm-hmm. okay. Like find a safe person and just open up about what you're dealing with. Um, because I think that will just set the path for so much freedom for them and so much healing. I, I think that, you know, there are a lot of um, emotional scars that go along with loving someone who is um, an addict. And emotional scars cut so deep, and they can hinder our walk with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And yeah. until we can let that go and, and, and release that in order to get that emotional healing that we need, um, it, it, you just, it does. You can't fully um, be in a relationship with the Lord in the way that he wants and desires for you. you it, there's, just, I'm, there's just something that holds you back. And so I would just really encourage them. Um, there are, like I said, obviously Finding Hope, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Finding Hope, but there are so many other 
um, support groups out there. There are support groups online. So if you don't feel comfortable going in person, even just that's how I started. I just, it was during COVID. And so I just started watching a, a meeting online. Um, I think that they will find that it is so much different than maybe what they think and that there is so much healing that can come mm -hmm. by just being open and honest about it. Mm -hmm. I remember you said just a minute ago um, at one part of your story, you just wished you had spoken up about it sooner because you had carried this, mm -hmm. this weight mm -hmm. and it was in trying to make sure no one found out it was heavier. Mm -hmm. Well, I felt so alone. I mean, I felt like there's nobody out there that could p possibly understand what I'm walking through. And of course, that's what the enemy wants, right? The devil yeah. wants us to feel isolated and alone and like nobody gets it. And until you open up, he's going to keep you in that pit. You waller in that pit and you stay in that until you open up and can express those feelings of what you're going through to somebody. That's when the freedom comes. And that's when you get so much freedom. I think it's hard too because I think, um, like, I or I would think that like you're thinking this is my story, but this is also somebody else's story. So what do I do with all of that? That's a great point. Yes, that is very true, and and we talk about that a lot um, in finding hope because, yeah, my mom's story is her story to tell. So I really just try to speak into my own experiences and how it affected me and 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 what my walk has been like. Um, I am so grateful to say that now my mom is in recovery and she's doing great. She's actually on staff with Hope is Alive Ministries and is a program oh, wow. manager over a home That's in North exciting. Carolina. Yeah, she's doing so great. And so we, but over the years, we have had a lot of hard conversations. Um, thankfully, through the rehabs that she's gone to, they have had family therapy times and, and that's been a great opportunity for us to just talk through things and, and, and be open and honest with each other about what our boundaries are about this story and mm -hmm. what's okay sure. to say and, and not to say. Um, but my mom is, is grateful for me to be able to share my story now and, and, and just sees the healing that has happened in my life. And, um, and we both just more than anything, just, just want people to walk in the freedom that we both are in now. Absolutely. I mean, it's exactly why Finding Hope Ministries and Hope is Alive Ministries exist for what you just now said. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's so true. We've gotten to have Lance Lang at our church who started Hope is Alive and love his story and Afraid Not podcast wants to stand behind this ministry and say, yes, listeners, check it out. This is a trustworthy and faithful ministry. And I'm just so thrilled that you, Misty, are, are willing to talk about it today and shed light on it today and give hope to our listeners today. Thank you so much. Did you have any extra resources or anything else you wanted to share? Um, yeah, just there are so many meetings out there. Like I said, I feel like I'm, I'm a broken record, but um, I just can't emphasize it enough. Get online, check it out. Check out Finding Hope, check out Al-Anon, whatever works for you, but um, take that first step of, of getting towards freedom. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening today. We're so glad you were here. And Misty, we just want to thank you for saying yes and sharing your story with our listeners. 
One of the things that Misty told us as she was wrapping up today, she shared that her life verse has meant so much to her. And as a closing today, I'm going to read the life verse that Misty has found so much hope in. It is Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you are interested in the Ministries of Hope is Alive or Finding Hope, Please, we're going to have that information of those resources in our show notes. But also, Misty did let us know that if you are in Owasso and that is something you are interested in finding more about, her personal group meets on the first and third Wednesdays at 630 um, at Rejoice Church. So that is some somewhere you could reach out and find resources if that's what you're looking for. We are so glad you joined us today. And we are finally into fall. Yay! Sweater <laughs> weather is here. I love it. It's not 5,000 degrees outside anymore. So, <laughs> um, anyway, thanks for joining us. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Enjoy some apple cider and a walk through the fall leaves. Bye, everybody.